So tonight's topic is very practical. I thought I would talk tonight about money. And it's not a topic that's um, talked about a lot in the Dharma. And yet I would venture to say that all of us use money in our lives. I don't think any of us have taken the monastic vows that prevent that. I told somebody that I was going to be talking about this topic and I said I'm going to talk about the challenging topic of money and this person said oh it's a great topic who doesn't love money so it's a good point I'm going to start with a few stories so This is a a story of a real person. I didn't know them, but um, apparently she was fairly wealthy from having a um, prominent job as a consultant or a finance person or something like that. And somehow she had accumulated a number of houses and lived a fairly large lifestyle. And then she got into the Dharma And she decided at some point to make a practice of generosity, since she had so much. And she ended up giving away nearly all of her assets. She sold the houses, she donated the money to Dharma organizations. And then she got cancer. And she needed to spend a lot um, to take care of that, a lot of her time and energy. She had one house left, which she lived in during that time. And when her health was stabilized, she needed to go back to work, actually. She had given away so much. Um, so she got her old job back, and um, and she needed health care. So she, But she was nonetheless glad that she had done what she did, giving away nearly everything. She had no regrets because it was done with a good intention, and with a deliberate intention and not out of guilt or anything. There's also a story, not from the Theravadan tradition, because monks in this tradition don't use money, but it was from another Buddhist tradition who, um, before he became a monk, he was a businessman, He had a number of businesses in town, and he didn't give them up when he became a monk. He just turned them over to stewards. And he was also kind of an odd monk in that whenever people would come to the monastery to make a donation or something, he would um, kind of rush to the front and try to be the one who received it. And he was very, obviously very acquisitive in some way. And so he was... This was frowned upon by his fellow monastics who thought he was not very well disciplined. And then there came a time when the small town where the monastery was was wiped out by a flood. A big flood came, somewhat like the rainstorms we've had this year. And people, you know, people's houses floated away and it was a, a big disaster for the town and within a day or two, people looked out and up the road were coming big carts with building materials on them. 
and he had spent all of his money to rebuild the town. And so one can you know, look at the larger karmic picture and say, hmm, maybe, maybe his mind wasn't so far away from what was really needed. But he had been judged during the time before that. And then the last story is also a real-world one about um, there was a person who wished to, it was in Japan, and they wished to donate to the monastery, so they were very inspired by what they saw there, but they, they didn't have enough money for that, really. They, were, uh, they didn't have a lifestyle like that. But they knew they were pretty good at, at business, and so they deliberately set out to create a publishing business um, to, in order to generate a lot of money in order to donate it to the monasteries. So it wasn't a non-profit. It wasn't a socially responsible business. They went right into the rather cutthroat Japanese business world and uh, had this purpose, this larger purpose in mind. And they played all the games. They did it all according to capitalism. And they were eventually successful over a number of years and built up a huge publishing business and used that to support a monastery and lots of monastics. And so again, there's the question of what was and what was going on during that, and yet it had a very good result. So I chose these stories because they demonstrate that money is part of a bigger picture in our lives. It's always part of our total life, and it's actually an important part. So if we have somehow excluded our spiritual life or or excluded money from our spiritual life we're missing some of the some of the picture and if we're not willing to look at that in terms of how we're using it how we're relating to it um, we're somehow afraid to talk about it that's not quite in line with the practice where we are intended to take in every aspect of our lives and consider how it fits into the dharma and our intentions in our spiritual practice. So I thought about, you know, why did I somewhat unconsciously say this is going to be the challenging topic of money? You know, what, why, did I, uh, why did I say that? So I feel like, I don't have an answer for that, by the way, <laughs> but I feel like I have to put some caveats on this topic before I can even delve into it. So, you know, why is money not talked about very often in the Dharma? I think there are at least two reasons. Um, One is that, in general, American culture is um, somewhat shy about money. It's a little bit, it's not quite a taboo, but a little bit towards that. And this is because, basically, that we're afraid to acknowledge class differences, in our society. Uh, We're just getting to the point where we can talk about more reasonably about ethnic differences and religious differences. But uh, class differences are very threatening because they go against the uh, principle of the American dream that our country is a place where anybody could do anything, really, with enough drive and wit and cleverness. 
So then this taboo spills over into Dharma groups and often also into liberal areas that tend to be liberal or progressive. So it's a little bit awkward to bring up money in our tradition. And then, secondly, I would say that um, Judeo-Christian culture, even if you don't participate in that or didn't even grow up with it, often um, has a way of glorifying poverty. And I'll, I'll say a little more about that, although I'm certainly not myself a uh, expert, but we have quotes like Jesus saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And it's important to note that the Buddhist teachings don't say this. They don't. Um, they don't say that wealth is uh, particularly to be good or bad. It's, it's all. We'll see that it's more about the skill or lack of skill as is often the case in Buddhism. And of course we have in our uh, tradition also we have Theravadan monastics who, like unlike the other monastics, don't use money. And so we have a sense maybe of uh, money is a little bit dirty or it's something that lay people who aren't as spiritually advanced deal with and the monastics have risen above that. So these are just caveats about why, why maybe this sometimes isn't talked about that much. But I don't think it's necessary. I, don't, I think it's fine that we can. If there's a feeling of awkwardness or something, that's a feeling to notice, right? That's how our practice works. Did you note that? <laughs> it's also important to see the views and identities and uh, emotions that are wrapped up with thoughts about money. So we'll maybe look into some of that also. So this opens the question then of what do the Buddhist teachings say about money and wealth? It's important to note that what the Buddha talked about was mostly our relationship to money. Not money itself, but mostly our relationship to it. And this makes sense in that... um, It allows us, well, it makes sense because that's often what he focused on, is that's where the suffering or the freedom is, is in how we relate to things. But the nice thing about this is that it allows us to realize that this topic is actually relevant for us. It would be easy to dismiss it and say, well, in 21st century Western culture, we have, you know, global capitalism, which that economic system did not even exist 2,500 years ago in India. So one could easily say, you know, the Buddha didn't understand anything about economics that's relevant to us. But he wasn't really talking only about economics. He was talking about our relationship to wealth and money, both in the personal sense and in our broader political and economic views, but mostly in the personal sense. And for sure, we, we also have a relationship to money and wealth in our lives. So I thought I'd actually read a few uh, read d- uh, excerpts from a few suttas, from a few of the Buddha's discourses where he talks about this. So there's one where he's um, talking to a group of lay people who basically say, hey, we're lay people, we're not monastics, we enjoy sensual pleasures. How is it that we can live well in this life and 
since this was part of their culture, how can we assure uh, living well in the next life too? So how can we have a good rebirth? And he gives four for each, four ways to live well in this life and four ways to ensure a good next life. And the four for this life are interesting. The first one is that you should be you should work well, basically. Work in a skillful way, which means be good at what you do, so be competent. And then also there's the factor of kind of, he calls it arranging, what does he say? Arranging things so that the work flows smoothly. So that's, you know, keeping it together, making sure that you are responsible in your communications. You don't let clients drop. You do things on time. You don't overschedule yourself or underschedule yourself. You know, the basics around keeping your work going. You have some sense about when you need to train other people, how many employees to hire if you do that. So basically be skilled in your work. Number two, protect your wealth. So it's interesting, right? So for lay people, he says, you should guard your wealth against five things, and they're interesting. Kings, thieves, fire, floods, and jealous relatives. <laughs> we, we can get all the equivalents of those, right, in our modern society. So basically, if you have, if you have wealth, protect it. You don't have to, um, yeah. Thirdly, have good friends. That makes sense. So if you want to have a good life, hang out with people who are, he names specifically people of uh, faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. So have good friends. Hang out with people whose attributes you can imitate. And then fourth, have a balanced livelihood, which one translator translates as living in tune. This is also very practical. Your income exceeds your expenditures. And you neither live in a miserly way nor in an extravagant way. I think that one has a little bit of interest built into it, too. I mean, the part about having your income exceed your expenses, that's relatively practical. But then in addition, he says that you shouldn't live... Well, that that right there says don't live too extravagantly. But he also says don't live in a miserly way. So we shouldn't... uh, If we have wealth, it's okay to use it. It actually goes on, um, that flows into the next sutta I want to talk about, which is about putting wealth to good use. There are a number of discourses that talk about this, this part about making sure that we use it well, because money is basically a resource. It's an event in life. We have money or we don't. It comes or it goes. What are you doing with it? That's the real question for Buddhism. What are you doing with it? And so there's a conversation between King Pasenadi and the Buddha. The king says, Just now, Lord, a money-lending householder died in Savati. I have come from conveying his heirless fortune to the royal palace, eight million in silver, to say nothing of the gold. But even though he was a money-lending householder, his enjoyment of food was like this. He ate broken rice and pickle brine. His enjoyment of clothing was like this. He wore three lengths of hempen cloth. His enjoyment of a vehicle was like this. He rode in a dilapidated little cart with an awning of leaves. And the Buddha says, that's the way it is, great king, that's the way it is. When a person of no integrity acquires lavish wealth, he doesn't provide for his own pleasure and satisfaction, 
nor for the pleasure and satisfaction of his parents, nor for the pleasure and satisfaction of his wife and children, of his slaves, servants, and assistants, or of his friends. He doesn't institute for Brahmins and contemplatives offerings of supreme aim which result in happiness. When his wealth isn't properly put to use, kings make off with it, or thieves make off with it, or fire burns it, or water sweeps it away, or hateful heirs make off with it. Those are the same five things mentioned in the other sutta. Thus his wealth, not properly put to use, goes to waste and not to any good use. Are you surprised to hear the Buddha say that? He, uh, he was very clear that um, wealth is something that should be used. And if a person, this basically, this basically describes Ebenezer Scrooge, right? You guys ever read the Charles Dickens novel? You know, he was very wealthy, but he lived in a cold house, and he ate gruel, and he had, you know, lousy clothes, uh, didn't have much of a social life. And uh, in the same way that Charles Dickens, I don't know if I should compare these two, uh, he's criticized, and, you know, Scrooge is criticized because his heart was closed in that book. And basically the Buddha is saying, this is not a, a very productive use of wealth. So then one might ask, what are the five good uses? They're kind of embedded in that one, but there's another, a whole different sutta that says what they are. Supporting family and employees, supporting friends and associates, warding off calamities, so protecting the wealth, and keeping yourself safe. Performing the five oblations to relatives, guests, the dead, kings, and devas. We may not do that one in the modern world. And the fifth is offering to contemplatives, which is basically supporting the Dharma. So he says these are the five good uses. Support other people, support and protect yourself and your own wealth, and make offerings or donations. I'll have another comment about that sutta in a moment. And then just one more of those. Um, One more of these. There's a a sutta called The Causes of Downfall. And there's a whole long list of them. But I'll read two of them. Though being well-to-do, not to support father and mother who are old and past their youth, this is a cause of one's downfall. To have much wealth and ample gold and food, but to enjoy one's luxuries alone, this is a cause of one's downfall. So he's promoting money as basically a means of social harmony and social connection and uh, creation of something good, of enjoyment. So he's promoting the positive aspects of wealth. However, as you can imagine, uh, the Buddha was well aware that money does not always uh, contribute to a person's good character, right? It's It's a powerful thing, money, and how we relate to it might be unskillful, and he's concerned about that. He's well aware of that. So here's another conversation between King Pisenity and the Buddha. And the king says, Just now, Lord, while I was alone in seclusion, this train of thought arose in my awareness. Few are those people in the world who, when acquiring lavish wealth, don't become intoxicated and heedless, don't become greedy for sensual pleasures, and don't mistreat other beings. Many more are those who, when acquiring lavish wealth, become intoxicated and heedless, become greedy for sensual pleasures, and mistreat other beings. So 
this was his thought. And the Buddha says, that's the way it is, great king. That's the way it is. So, you know, there's something a little bit um, dangerous about money. It has the potential to fuel unwholesome mind states. And the Buddha was concerned about this, which I think is another reason that he had so many suttas about this is how you should use your wealth well. This is how you should do it. You should care about other people. You should support the Dharma, other things like that. So again, we have... Okay, so now I I want to get Jesus off the hook. As I said, I'm not at all a biblical scholar, but I wonder if when he said the part about it would be harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle. I wonder if he was sensitive to the fact that rich people are likely to fall prey to these unwholesome mind states, these unwholesome ways of being in the world, being greedy or mistreating other beings. And that is what makes it hard for them to get into heaven. So it's just more subtle. He's not saying because they're rich, you know, the wealth itself makes them unsuitable to be in hell- heaven I would suspect that Jesus was a little smarter than that and was saying that because people are rich, they're likely not to behave in ways that will encourage them to get into heaven. All right, so I talked about briefly about that five good uses of wealth, which is basically supporting other people and helping them to enjoy life, protecting your wealth and protecting yourself and making offerings or donations. That sutta goes on, and the conclusion to it is interesting. It says, If a noble disciple's wealth is exhausted when he has utilized it in these five ways, he thinks, I have utilized wealth in these five ways, and my wealth is exhausted. Thus, he has no regret. But if a noble disciple's wealth increases when he has utilized it in these five ways, he thinks, I have utilized wealth in these five ways, and my wealth has increased. Thus, either way, he has no regret. (laughs) It's a little interesting. It's very, it's subtle what's being said there. So first of all, there's no promises. It doesn't say if you use your wealth well, and you offer it to people, and you help them enjoy their lives, you will surely come into more and more wealth. That will be a cycle that increases for you. Actually, he says, maybe it'll just end up being exhausted. Or maybe it'll increase. We don't know. So there's no promise offered. Um, But what we are offered, if we use it well, is the potential for total equanimity. Basically the person says, well, I used it in those five ways and it's gone. Okay, no regret. And he says, oh, I used it in those five ways and it increased. Okay, also no regret. So basically the fruit of gaining skill with using wealth is that you know that the wealth has been put to the best possible use so it's not leading to harm and there's the potential just to be totally balanced about whether it comes, it goes. Wealth is, after all, part of the eight worldly winds which are just the conditions of the world and two of those winds are gain and loss. Most likely in your life you'll see both. So, it's interesting and important in our practice, I think, to know what our own relationship is to wealth. And 
if you're willing, I'd like to invite you into a, a short um, reflective exercise. So if you'd like, you can close your eyes and sit in a meditative posture and just relax for a moment and feel your body sitting. Bring your attention back inside. And just dropping into into whatever space your mind is in, open to your own financial situation, your current financial situation in terms of what you've got saved up, how much income you have, what kind of expenses you have, just kind of that overall picture. And let yourself feel it in your body. It's just what it is. We're not we're just observing and so feeling any feelings viscerally. And now staying with those visceral feelings, imagine the following scenario. You go to your online banking site and you discover that there's a big zero there. All of your money is gone. It's just gone. The bank can't find it. There are no records. You have no money. Notice what you're feeling in your body. Notice what's happening in your thoughts or emotions. Just sit and feel that for a moment. You have everything else, your current state of health, anything that's in your house, but nothing in the bank. to the room when you're ready. That was a very short exercise, but it it may help to touch into the, the say the dominant dimension of our relationship to money. I'll give some possibilities people often have. One is a relationship that includes some greed. These are all very normal, by the way. One is a relationship that includes some greed, so a sense of More money is better. How can I get more of it? How can I get it at all? And there's often, um, in greed, there's a connection to fear because they actually come from the same part of the brain that produce greed, also produces fear. That's why once we get what we want, we're then afraid of losing it. (laughs) It's, It's all the same activity. So that's a common one. There can also be a relationship of aversion or hatred, which at first you might say, why? Who would, you know, after all, doesn't everybody love money? Like the person I commented to at the beginning of the talk. But there can be, especially among spiritual people, a little bit of an aversive relationship. It can be a sense of, I don't want to deal with money. I don't think it's really that proper for me to be interested in money, and therefore I don't really want to think about it. I want enough. But other than that, I don't want to deal with it. I'll give it to my financial advisor or I'll let my partner take care of it. 
or whatever. Somebody else can manage that. Um, Otherwise, I really don't want much to do with it. And we often have some of that in us also. There can also be a relationship of delusion to money, which says that money says something about me. Money says something about my identity, how much I have. Um, The fact that I was able to get it proves that I'm competent, that I'm a good person, um, that I uh, am a superior person to people who weren't able to get as much. So things like that. Or if I'm not getting much, I'm a terrible person. Obviously, I'm screwing up. I'm a failure in life because I'm not able to get as much as I should. We often have a lot. This is a very common one also. Or we could have a relationship of equanimity. You might have felt nothing in particular. I've done this exercise with other people, and someone said that um, she first felt a feeling of fear when her money was gone, and then she had the thought, I have options. And as soon as she had that thought, it's not that it all went away, but she settled. She realized, oh, you know, it's okay. It would be okay. And this is important because our happiness, if our happiness is dependent on something external, that's a risk for us. That's an area where, that should attract our attention. Ah, not quite safe if I'm dependent on something like that. And money is definitely not totally under our control. Do you want your happiness dependent on that? So you can see now why this is where the suffering or the freedom lies. Did you feel that? So here's another real-life story. I read it in a book, and so the the I is the author of the book. It's not that important where it came from. I knew a man who lost a fortune suddenly and was penniless with a legal battle to fight and children to support. He found that he had another kind of wealth in the ties of affection and respect that he had built up, wealth he would otherwise never have seen. Lawyers took on his case pro bono, the grocery store extended credit, The schools gave scholarships, and he got by on the wealth that was invisible before the money dried up. So you may have more wealth than you think. One way that the Buddha talked about things where we tend to cling, and I can guarantee you money is one of them, (laughs) so we'll put that in that category, but generally things where we tend to cling, he talked about gratification, danger, and escape. And these are things where he would acknowledge there is gratification in this thing, such as wealth. There is gratification in it. Of course we enjoy money. We can go out and buy things. We can go out to dinner. We can heat our home. We can go on vacation. We can go on retreat. <laughs> you know, There's great things that can come from having money. So he doesn't deny. He doesn't ever deny that things that are attractive to us, are um, potential sources of gratification. So he says it's real, but he'll then point out there is a danger. There, uh, there is a danger to these things that are gratifying. One danger is, of course, that we could get wrapped up in unwholesome mind states. He already talked about this. We talked about this with the money, is that we could become desirous of sensual pleasures and cruel to other beings and so forth. And also, um, the other danger is simply that money is not reliable. 
it could just go away. Maybe not as dramatically as I said. If your bank account disappeared, probably there'd be a record of it somewhere. But, you know, in some countries, the currency can be completely revalued overnight. My teacher lived for a while in uh, Burma, and it happened to be during a time of economic instability. And overnight, the government changed the value of the currency, and it was just, it was divided down. And suddenly, he had a lot less money than he did before. He didn't care that much, but it, it, you know, it can change. He didn't care much because he was a monk. <laughs> but um, so money can come and go outside of our ability to control it, and therefore our attachment to it is suffering for sure. However, the Buddha was compassionate, and in these cases, he always pointed out an escape, gratification, danger, and escape. He said, "Don't worry." there is a way out of the suffering of being attached to this attractive thing. And we've already heard that in the case of money, one is to uh, generate merit, so to use the money well for good in the world, helping other people, helping yourself, supporting the Dharma. That's one thing that helps um, the money to be not so not so much of a danger to us. And then the other, of course, is um, to free the heart through deep meditation to actually free the heart of craving and clinging, any craving and clinging that it has through awakening. That's the, that's the real escape. Now to move toward the escape is to, you know, to begin with that is to recognize the limitations of money. And there are a number of suttas where he talks about, he points out in his inimically logical way so, if you had a lot of wealth, would that buy you happiness? And the monks always say, no, Lord, it would not. And so he, he very clearly points toward how much happiness is this bringing. There is some, but it can't guarantee. And then he even gets um, quite explicit where he says, any sensual bliss in the world, any heavenly bliss, such as that can, that can be bought with money, isn't worth one sixteenth sixteenth of the bliss of the ending of craving. So it's very clear. He even says it explicitly. So sometimes people ask, well, how can I practice with this? I'll offer a few examples. Um, one practice that's kind of fun to do, it's also a practice in generosity. is to determine, one morning, get up and determine, pick out a $20 bill and determine that you're going to give it away to a stranger that day. You have to give it away to a stranger that day and then carry it in your pocket as you go about your day and see what happens. So look for an opportunity and see what happens because what you'll discover is maybe a little bit of resistance to giving it away You'll discover whether that you're concerned about whether you're giving it away to the right person. You know, if I just give it to the first homeless person I see on the street, is that wise or not? Uh, and so all all kinds of ideas come into your mind. Um, so you'll you'll get to see something about your relationship to money, which is important because that's where the you know, where the suffering or the freedom is. Another related one is to get up one morning and decide that starting from that point forward. The next time, whenever it is, the next time somebody asks you for money, you will give it. And you will give a little bit more than they ask for or than that your gut says you should. 
Not a lot more, but a little bit more. So then you see what your mind does with that. Because now you have beholden yourself to give away an indeterminate amount of money at an indeterminate time. And you can, you know you have to give something up. And so you can see how that feels. And who's it going to be? And I have to say yes. And it has to be a little bit of a push. So you can again watch what the mind does with that. And then a third thing that's a little more cerebral is to write down things that you value. So money in our society, I don't have time to get into this, this is a whole topic in and of itself, but money is a a proxy for value in our society, right? It's literally the value of what I have to spend to get something. But it's become a proxy for for the other kind of value. Things that are expensive are considered somehow higher quality, better, more, I don't know, um, make you look better, something. But this really gets twisted in that the things that we actually value often you know, don't have monetary values associated with them, but we can have that mistake going on in our mind. So write down some things that you actually value, things like qualities of the heart, uh, the dharma, your friends, other things like that, and then check, then check at your budget and see how much of your money goes to things that in some way actually support what you value as opposed to um, other things, say sensual pleasure or something else. Now remember that you know enjoying your life is considered something that's fine to spend money on, but it can be an interesting exercise to see what fraction is going to supporting deep values of the heart that we have. And I know there are practicalities. You do have to pay your rent and your taxes and your electricity bill and all that. Okay, so I think I want to just say a little bit now about um, the ways in which some people use money, maybe not even deliberately money, but they've taken on a whole different relationship to the whole money world in their lives as part of their, as an element of their spiritual practice. There are people for whom basically they're not, they're profoundly disinterested in career, in saving, in retirement, in planning, in creating all of that structure, which is such a burden, by the way, right? Um, but there are people that, are, that actually live quite disinterested in that, and uh, they may be called, say, lay renunciates or something like that. And I'll just give a couple examples. I, I think these people are interesting and worth knowing that they exist. I have a Dharma friend who uh, lived for about two years in this area, um, rent-free by house-sitting for other Dharma people who were away. So, you know, they'd go on a three-month retreat. He'd stay in their house during that time. And then uh, when that was ending, somebody would be going away for a week somewhere to teach, and he'd stay in their house. And then, you know, somebody would be traveling on pilgrimage to Thailand, and he'd stay in their house. And I don't know how these things work, but sometimes they work this way in the Dharma, is that pretty much each time one ended, another one came. And he did that for about two years, and he was so happy. He just moved around, helped other people, um, lived very inexpensively. He did have a part-time job, so he was actually earning some money at that time. 
I thought it was very interesting, and he, he just did it totally on faith. Another is from a person who, um, you know, this is part of a larger group of people, but this is one example, who find that compassion overrides their financial concerns. Now, compassion is so strong that it's uh, the organizing function of their financial life. And this is um, a friend of mine who was a human rights worker and also a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist nun and now a teacher. But she did a lot of human rights work when she was younger. And she told me this, and it really stuck in my heart so much that I wrote it down. And I actually think about it as someone who is making some attempt at teaching the Dharma as part of my life. So she says, When I was 42 years old, living in Rwanda, I was sautéing carrots and ginger in olive oil, and it occurred to me that if I kept living the way I was living, I would be poor in my old age. I realized that I could turn my back on all of this and try to create some financial stability, or I could try to develop the strength to meet whatever comes. Then and now, the latter path seemed more practical. I went into this with my eyes wide open, and I have been luckier than I ever knew I could be. She now is elderly, nearing retirement, obviously has very few assets, but she lives in Cambodia, uh, where the cost of living is pretty low, and where she's built up some merit, like that guy who lost all of his money and had friends. Um, she knew a bunch of people there, and she did uh, an excellent um, nonprofit project there for a number of years. And so from that, she has this whole network of people. She has a pretty nice little apartment and hopefully access to health care. But it's an interesting life, and she has no regrets because she used her wealth, what little she had, totally in line with her values. And apparently she developed the strength to meet what comes. I find this impressive. It's not for everyone. I'm not. Um, there's a, in many different ways. Uh, there was also a prominent supporter of the Buddha named Anattapindika, who was a banker wealthy banker, and he became a stream mentor. He was certainly a strong, strong practitioner, and the Buddha praised him a lot for the quality of his practice. So rich or poor is not so important as what we do with it, how we live, how, our, how, it strength, how we use it to strengthen our practice and our heart. So money is an important part of life, and I encourage you to consider how it matches your practice to find freedom in the relationship to money so that if it all goes, that'd be fine. <laughs> or if you get a lot, which can happen, it doesn't destabilize you in some way. Mm, a rich topic. I talked for a long time. So we'll, um, I'll stop there and see if anybody has any comments or questions. Or I understand if you have to go, it's 8.30 now. Yeah, Rex. Certainly a rich topic. A rich topic, did I say that? (laughs) That's funny. Many other aspects that I've considered over the years, like extending my personal ethics to how I earn my livelihood. Mm -hmm. And at 
one point I basically turned down a pretty lucrative career because I could not <laughs> see myself doing that. Yep. That's a difficult decision to make sometimes. Yeah, can be. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think you could easily extend the topic of money to a, <laughs> a month long. <laughs> it could. Maybe I'll have some other thoughts on it eventually. Yeah. I, yeah, it's, I sort of put that caveat at the beginning. You said it's too big of a topic to cover in one session, especially since we don't talk about it much. So if there's a lot of ground to cover. Certainly livelihood is a big one. Yeah. Thank you. Go ahead if you have a little bit more, and then the person behind you. You also reminded me that just, I think just a few days ago, the Pope said something about giving money to beggars, basically. And that he said, just do it. You will, in essence, relieve their suffering for a time, and don't worry if they're going to, in his case, his quote was, if they will spend it on wine. Yeah, which is often the fear or yeah. drugs, or whatever. Yeah. I just uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's... Um, I'll just tell... This is not about money exactly, but it's a similar idea, is that I I teach meditation in a psychiatric ward in the hospital, and I have no illusions that... Um, you know, those, those folks are not going to do a regular meditation practice. It's not something that they can really take on regularly. Um, but I know that for that half an hour, their minds were in a better place than they would have been if I hadn't been there doing that with them. That's my offering, 30 minutes. And maybe in the same way, it's just that day, there's something comes from that money. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm just saying it's very pertinent, because actually me and my friends are having that discussion uh-huh. about, you know, well, that's not about the value of money or what, what's money used for. Like also, when you make a choice, like what you were saying is... If something in your heart is calling you but doesn't pay that much, and the question of Santa Cruz is expensive, <laughs> you know, do you opt not to take it to, for something else because you want to live in the area, for example? Those or, are choices that we make personally. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, trusting, having the faith mm-hmm. of things will work out. And then what does it look like to live according to your um, value, and, or your own your value? And then, yeah, making the decisions, like, okay, do I take that risk or I don't take that risk or... Yeah. You know, should we trust or not trust? Or, but then also, what was coming up also um, was the idea of well, human rights too. Like, what is basic human rights? I mean, should we instead of having value placed on money, like this person is good because he has money or doesn't have money or poor, they're not they're not valuable as a human being. Yeah. And should Gets the values up be, for example, very similar? Like, well, maybe basic values is food and shelter. You know, so it's just it's, it's just very interesting to. I mean, this is it's percolating a lot. Among yeah. Fellow friends, so. I get it, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate the topic very much. And um, one of the um, kind of dharmic, I guess, pitfalls of money that I've seen in my own life, especially and work as a, as a philanthropist especially is how um, the, the prospect of, of giving money can sometimes diffuse the, 
the, the pressure of feeling into the, the suffering and sadness mm-hmm. of the thing that you would give money to, the certain cause, that the, the potential, and sometimes the illusion of being able to do something about it by giving some I money see. can distract yeah. mm-hmm. from the, the felt sense of the suffering mm-hmm. and, the, and the depth of compassion that comes from that. It's it can very, be a yeah. little bit of a um, premature pressure release valve of, okay, I've done something about it. Yeah, that's very astute to notice that. And um, that means that there's an element of ego in the giving. We're doing it a little bit to relieve our discomfort mm-hmm. or to not have to feel certain things. Um, I would say it's still, you know, still a meritorious act. But, um, yeah, that's something to watch if one is giving. One hears about this a lot in chaplaincy training. Again, this is not monetary, but it's the same issue, is that you're with somebody who's suffering. Often chaplains are kind of rushing to uh, read quotes from the Bible or Mm. tell people good things or say, it's not going to be so bad, you know, it's really okay, um, because they're, they're not able to hold you know, what they're seeing in the other person. Yeah. So it's the same thing. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.